to talk about identifying and managing early uh, signs of dementia. Uh, you know, we've talked to a lot of you. Um, getting that first diagnosis is often a very painful experience. Uh, people, uh, it's common people are misdiagnosed. So we thought we would really delve into the issue today about really what do those early signs look like? How do you manage them? Um, how you get a dementia diagnosis? So we're pleased today uh, to have with us Dr. Stephanie Collier. She is from McLean Hospital, a hospital, a psychiatric hospital affiliated with Harvard. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So um, Stephanie, I just really wanna start first with um, those, you know, I often, um, we, we have a series here called Being Patient Brain Talks, where we look at dementia from the person's point of view, the, uh, the patient's point of view, and we ask them, you know, in hindsight, how did you know something was first wrong? Um, and oftentimes, it's not really memory loss that they talk about. It's more of an attention problem or their productivity at work slipped. So talk to us about a, a little bit about what are those really early signs? Are there any patterns um, that you've observed given um, your experience with seeing patients with dementia? I'm really glad you mentioned the attentional problems because I do see that a lot, where patients come in saying they used to have you know, very good attention and now they're struggling just to continue the task that they started. Um, besides the attentional problems, sometimes they've also noticed that they're just not able to perform as well as they could previously perform at work. And they might have small memory lapses. Those are usually the first signs. And the memory lapses are usually for things that have happened very, very recently that day or the day before. For example, it might take them a little bit longer to remember what did they have for breakfast or who did they talk to or what was the name of the person that they had talked to an hour ago. And sometimes these are so subtle that they're a little bit frightening to the patient when they're first aware that they're having these very, very small memory lapses. Um, when when people come to see you um, as a psychiatrist, is it usually, um, and, and I know you see, you specialize in um, elder um, patients. And so I, I think you were telling me before, you know, anyone over 60 years old, um, when, is it, is it usually the, oh, I'm starting to worry, I don't know if it's normal aging or if it's memory loss? Is, is that the starting point usually for your patients with dementia? Very often it could be, and it's not always related to memory at all. It could be anxiety disorders. And people as they get older can forget short-term, um, they have a little lapse in a short-term memory. They might forget the name of someone or they might forget an ingredient on their shopping list and that's completely normal. But if they're anxious, they'll remember that they forgot it. And so that might bring them in because they wanna make sure that they don't have dementia. And that's the diagnosis that people are very frightened of hearing. And so they often do come very early and they don't always have um, progression to mild cognitive impairment or to dementia. So, um, I, and, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the other, the other um, diagnosis that can appear similar is depression. When people are in a depression, in a major depressive episode, especially if it's one of their first episodes, as an older adult, they may worry that they're just not thinking, they're not as sharp as they were previously. And it's due to the depression and the memory improves when the depression is treated. Right. So, um, 
you know, I, I want to go a little bit back into that that ADD or ADHD type mm -hmm. of symptom because that's often ex explained to us, you know, like, oh, I couldn't hold my attention at work. Have have we are we aware of any um, link between um, attention deficit and um, you know maybe as an early sign um, of dementia? So attention can be affected as an early sign in dementia, absolutely. But if someone has attention deficit disorder, that does not necessarily mean that they're going to progress to dementia. So there are studies that have looked at the association between ADHD and later development of dementia. And there is a correlation, but we do not have enough data to say that this is causation, that there are changes in the brain that occur with ADHD that cause dementia. Into, um, um, someone is asking us, how common is out-of-body feelings in dementia, like um, your own bubble or, or your own world? I have heard that. I haven't heard that very commonly. Um, the out-of-body experience, it's, it's interesting because I don't necessarily know if that goes with dementia more than other diagnoses as well. Sometimes when people experience anxiety, which may or may not be due to the dementia, they can also experience these out-of-body sensations as well. Well, one thing that's interesting to talk about is, um, you know, we've talked to quite a few people who have been misdiagnosed with different types of dementia, right? So they're mm -hmm. given um, a diagnosis of, of early onset when they actually later find out that they had Lewy body. From those early signs, is it is it common or difficult? Uh, is it easy or difficult to understand that there may be different dementias in, in terms of looking at it up in, in the very early stage? In the very early stage, it is extremely difficult to make an accurate diagnosis because so many symptoms can overlap between different dementias, but also to other psychiatric illnesses. And many people with dementias also have comorbidity of depression or anxiety that can affect their cognitive performance. So um, longitudinal history is the best. If it's a sudden onset, we can think of maybe more of a vascular picture. Um, many strokes can cause symptoms that can look quite similar to Alzheimer's dementia. With a Lewy body dementia, that's on the spectrum of Parkinson's disease. And patients often develop motor symptoms later on, but early on, they can have different symptoms um, without any, they can have cognitive symptoms without any motor symptoms. With frontotemporal dementia, which can happen a little bit earlier on, people can have just changes in personality, but they might not have the short-term memory problems that you would see with other types of dementia. So also within Alzheimer's dementia, there's such a variable pre presentation. So no two patients look exactly identical. Yeah, I mean, that's also a, a really difficult one, too. Just um, as as this viewer mentioned, you know, that kind of out-of-body experience is like, you've heard it before, but is it common? And what? how is it related to the brain and neurodegeneration? You know, there's there, it just makes us realize how much more there really is to study um, in terms of progression and diagnosis and early stage symptoms. What is, what is the most common thing you hear from your patients in terms of that early stage? Um, is, it, is it, in fact, depression? Are they, are they coming because they're depressed or are they coming because now there's clear signs of cognitive impairment? It really depends where they are in, um, in their dementia. So at the very, very early stages, 
people may be concerned about their memory, but predominantly anxiety and depressive symptoms might be the first thing that, that I would confidently diagnose because there's such high comorbidity. Later on, sometimes people aren't as aware of their cognitive deficits, and it might be family members who have noticed that the patient is suffering from memory problems, but the patient might not be as aware, and they might not even notice that they've had trouble, even though um, they, they have significant trouble and need significant um, assistance from family members or other supports. Questions coming in. Um, someone has said, my mom had early onset at 59. My grandmother and great grandmother died from dementia. Should I be worried? So how much when you're diagnosing, how how important is that genetic link? And are most people opting to find out if, in fact, they do have the genetic link? That's a very personal decision. And only a subset of Alzheimer's dementia is um, based on family history with early onset. It's it's likelier, but um, but by no means is it a definite. Um, people really vary about whether they want to receive this diagnosis and whether they, they want to undergo testing early on. And um, there's no right or wrong in deciding to pursue testing or not. Um, as the question whether to be worried, um, we don't know the diagnosis and it's early right now. So, um, so it's because we don't know that might be more, for some it might be more worrisome, for others receiving the diagnosis might be more worrisome. So do you find, I mean, you talked a bit about depression and how, um, you know, depression is often, um, people are coming in for depression um, to find out later that they have some sort of cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. If you, have you found if you treat depression, the memory actually improves a bit? Can, yeah. is it, does yes. that, that way? Very often. And that is one of the nicest things about having treated depression in older adults, because people generally do worry about their memory if they are feeling depressed. And depression certainly affects memory. And the more depressive episodes a person has, the higher the likelihood that they will later have cognitive impairment. So treating depression makes a huge difference in cognitive performance. I actually have a patient who had neuropsychological testing about one or two years apart and um, dramatically improved. And that was due to treated depression. It wasn't- Do we an know why? Do we, do we know what the exact link is? Do we know why? So for the neuropsychological testing, um, there's so many different domains that are involved. And yes, attention is impaired by depression itself, but so is motivation. So is the ability to sustain um, concentration on tasks. And if the motivate, these are long tests as well. And so if someone's not feeling well, they might not feel confident, they might just give up and they won't complete testing. So you might not actually get an accurate picture of how they could perform during a depressive episode. Another question is, um, is having trouble with sensory overload or problems with just being easily overloaded a possible sign of dementia? It's a possible sign of dementia, but it's, again, if this is something new, it could be due to other neurologic conditions as well. So I wouldn't assume that it's due to a dementia if there's no other symptoms. Um, in order to diagnose dementia, it really does have to affect the activities of daily living, and it has to, it's generally a progressive illness too. So um, I, I wouldn't say if you just have those sensory symptoms that that's a warning sign necessarily for development of dementia.
So we were talking about this earlier. Um, why do most people get a diagnosis for MCI, mild cognitive impairment, before they get the diagnosis that it's a type of dementia, it's Alzheimer's? Why is that? So if it's an accurate diagnosis is another question. Sometimes people don't feel comfortable making that diagnosis without additional testing. For example, in a primary care office, uh, many, I work with primary care physicians, they do not necessarily um, feel comfortable making that diagnosis in a clinic setting. A patient can have a very classic history for a dementia, but they might not hear it from their primary care doctor because these are short appointments, there may not be sufficient information, and the confidence level of making the diagnosis just based on 20-minute appointments isn't there. However, if a patient's... Um, illness does meet criteria for MCI, that's basically mild cognitive impairment is impairment in the instrumental activities of daily living. So that would be difficulty with paying bills or finance, other finances or cooking, making shopping lists, um, grocery shopping. And there can be forgetfulness, but not to the point that it interferes with the activities such as grooming themselves, bathing, um, the, the activities of daily living. And if it's caught early, may, before people do have the diagnosis of dementia, they do go through a stage where their symptoms are just not as severe. And so not everyone who has mild cognitive impairment will progress. That's maybe just 10, 15% of people with mild cognitive impairment that will progress to dementia. But um, there can, again, be many causes of mild cognitive impairment, too. It could be due to small vascular insults in the brain, for example. That's not necessarily progressive if the cardiovascular risk factors are treated. Uh, what you were just saying. So um, a viewer is asking, who to see? My husband was diagnosed with early onset dementia several years ago by his family doctor. Um, I would like further diagnosis. There was a lot, of, lot more information we could have given the doctor, but he wasn't interested. And frankly, neither was my husband. I'm sure he was depressed and anxious. Do we see a, a neurologist or a psychologist? That's an excellent question. Like, who do you go see? And who's going to get That's, a, that's a very, very good question. And I have to say, um, both could be um, qualified to provide that diagnosis. A neurologist, absolutely, especially if there are other physical symptoms that are going along with the dementia, um, then it would be worth um, having a neurologic evaluation. For example, if there's some stiffness or rigidity, you wanna make sure that this isn't something like a Parkinson's disease dementia or Lewy body dementia. If there are no physical symptoms and a patient would like neuropsychological testing, a referral to a neuropsychologist, can be very helpful for this extensive testing that really measures different domains, um, different cognitive domains, including attention and memory and visuospatial, and can help with the differential diagnosis too, and can also make the diagnosis and say, this is far enough from, from the norm that we, we feel confident giving you a, a diagnosis of major cognitive, uh, major neurocognitive disorder. Okay, another viewer is saying, uh, you know, you can tell this is a pain point for people because, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, 
in their experience going through this, it's it's not often crystal clear um, what yeah. the reward is. So it's great to have yeah. someone like you to help us um, navigate some of this information. So um, this person is asking, saying, my husband is atypical. He has multiple dementias, Alzheimer's, Lewy body, and FTD. Seems like the medications are constantly being changed to address Parkinsonism and sleeping, as well as REM sleep disorder. Is this just the way of life with dementia? Tri trial and error with medication? I'm exhausted from monitoring medication, behavior changes, and fall prevention. I mean, I can imagine. I, and that's a lot of dementias at one time. Um, is that possible? So that's really a very um, wide, um, very wide differential slash a, a very large, I, I mean, that's a lot of dementias. Um, I, I'm curious how these dementias were diagnosed. I think um, most likely there's one or two. The most common would be Alzheimer's with plus minus vascular dementia. But um, to have really so many different dimensions diagnosed at the same time is a little bit unusual, I have to say. Um, and so I would just be curious how these diagnoses came about and if it was by, um, by testing or otherwise. As for the medications, unfortunately, people with dementia are often placed on medications um, to control behaviors and to control mood. And the medications are not without risk. And sometimes the medications can worsen the behavior. For example, in older adults who take medications in a class called benzodiazepines, you may have heard of Valium or Ativan, it can actually, um, it's meant to sedate people, but it can actually disinhibit older adults and can make behaviors worse. And so you end up giving more medications or um, some medications in the antipsychotic class can make people feel a little bit stiffer, rigid. And then you might have other medications that are counteracting the stiffness in the rigidity, which might cause cognitive blunting. And so um, simplifying medications is actually the majority of what I do. Removing medications to see what really works and only to be on medications, the minimum amount of medications that help control specific symptoms. So I, I want to pick apart this issue a little bit because, um, again, there's a lot of confusion around diagnosis. I mean, the fact mm -hmm. that this person said her husband received multiple, he has multiple dementias, Alzheimer's, Lewy bodies, and FTD. Now, I have sp spoken to a pathologist who told me um, on brain autopsy, 75% of the cases is often mixed dementia. It's mm -hmm. not just one type of, which is, yeah. which is understandable in a very simplistic way as dementia progresses. I mean, I think it can impact different parts of the brain. It, am I right in assuming that or wrong? You're absolutely right. If we live long enough, we will all have Alzheimer's pathology on our brain, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have the sort of phenotype of Alzheimer's disease, that we have the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, our brains can actually look a lot worse than our clinical presentation and vice versa. Our brains can look okay and we can have pretty severe symptoms. There's huge variability there too. So just because the pathology is there doesn't mean that's necessarily the reason. So um, yes, there might be pathology from multiple types and it is more common to have the vascular and Alzheimer's together, for example, or vascular plus another um, contributor for dementia. Right. But now, presumably to have all, th I, I don't know how old this person is, but to have all three at one time, 
how would you even begin to diagnose that? I mean, that would require a PET scan, would it not? Or how so you, you, could, you could look at imaging. Frontotemporal dementia, again, the brain doesn't always look like the clinical picture. There are people with clear frontotemporal dementia who have very characteristic symptoms who have on imaging normal looking brains. The dementia part on imaging, the atrophy, that does come later. However, to have all three of, um, of those uh, dementias present at the same time. I, I also wonder a little bit about um, the presentation of the patient because symptoms can overlap. When you think of frontotemporal dementia, you think of a person who may be disinhibited. And with progression of Alzheimer's disease, you can see personality changes and disinhibition as well. So if it happened early on, someone might say, well, this is a younger person who has more personality changes. Maybe this is frontotemporal dementia, but it's actually early onset Alzheimer's. And sometimes the first symptoms of Alzheimer's can actually be personality changes or mood changes. So it is a little bit tricky clinically. So, and let's get, let's talk a little bit more about the medications because this is also mm -hmm. a really big pain point for people. Yeah. Um, you know, we hear from both um, sides of the spectrum. Um, my mom or my wife turned into a zombie and was not even a semblance of her personality. So what was the point to, you know, terrible reactions to medication, like, you know, um, outbursts or just completely unmanageable behavioral um, consequences to medication. So is it true that you just, it's like trial and error. You have to try and then find the one, but there's, you know, sometimes that's a really long road for people to try before Absolutely. they get to the right equation. So how do you handle that? And what questions should we be asking doctors mm -hmm. in order to understand whether it's the best fit for the person? Okay. Before even getting to medications, uh, the guidelines actually do state that non-pharmacologic options should be pursued first. So in a patient who may have agitation, for example, non-pharmacologic interventions are more effective than medications. And even though um, they're harder to implement, it is worth trying different strategies with a person to see what calms them down. Some people might respond to music. Some people might respond to touch or massage. Some people might respond to just touching their hand and singing a song or opening a photo album or distracting them. Those can be very helpful interventions. And when you know what works for a person, continuing those interventions and helping to educate other family members and caregivers about what interventions work to decrease agitation. Medications should only be used if non-pharmacologic interventions are not sufficient. And when deciding which medication to start, it's extremely important to try the lowest dose to see if it makes a difference. If it does not make a difference, you can consider increasing the dose if there are no side effects. However, you should know that the medications are not without risk and there are risks for mortality in older adults with dementia especially in the antipsychotic class. So these are not harmless medications. And if they are not helping to decrease the agitation or to decrease the target symptom you're looking at, then they should not be continued. It's not that they should be continued and additional medications should be added. So thinking about what is, again, the minimum amount of medication to manage a target behavior, whether it's agitation when it's very severe and other, other interventions haven't worked.
So, but let's talk a little bit about depression in that regard, mm -hmm. because I'm assuming treating, um, you know, if someone comes to you and is really depressed, showing signs of cognitive impairment, um, would it be, would the choice be do behavioral modifications, mm -hmm. strategies, or would it be, let's just get you on medication to cure the depression, because that may help your memory? Yeah, so unfortunately, the data show that in dementia, antidepressants don't really work in treating depression due to dementia. So if a person has a history of depression, they may respond to antidepressants. But if someone does not have a history of depression and they have a diagnosis of dementia, the evidence is very poor that antidepressants even work. And so non-pharmacologic interventions actually can be very helpful for dementia. That could involve psychotherapy. That can involve also more structured interventions. How do we remove activities that cause the patient distress and schedule in things that the patient really enjoys? And working with a patient to customize their day, structure their day, um, and really hit sort of the target points that bring them joy. Also physical activity, outdoor activity especially has been shown to be an, a very good antidepressant and works better than um, antidepressants for people with dementia who don't have a history of depression. Often comes up on our website, um, which is, you know, what do we know about CBD or marijuana-based treatments? I know there's the research is pretty at a very nascent stage. It's really just mm -hmm. starting. Um, but like from your experience as a psychiatrist, is, is mm -hmm. CBD, is, is that something that you would tell patients to consider? I say we don't have enough evidence yet. We're working on it, there are studies underway, but at this moment, we do not have enough evidence to recommend um, cannabis products for anxiety, depression. Some, uh, plenty of my patients take cannabis products. They may have a history of taking cannabis products and it may work for them um, at times. We do know there's sort of a dose dependent action of um, cannabis products. We also know that we're too early on to be able to recommend um, in good faith that these products are helpful for target symptoms like depression or anxiety. Uh, that's, I mean, it will be really interesting. We've interviewed um, researchers who are, are really taking on CBD to understand, but unfortunately there's just not enough data yet. Um, mm -hmm. But again, we have people on our site all the time who are saying, well, I take it or, you know, I mean, as, as mm -hmm. it becomes legalized, a lot of people are choosing to, to take it um, regardless of what the evidence is out there. Yeah, yeah, and, and people are free to make their own choices. With the, it's just not enough that we can say um, we, we have the data to suggest that this will be helpful. Yeah, and understandable. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I just wanted to go into a little bit about how, um, because there is so much confusion over diagnosis in that earlier mm -hmm. stage, yeah. um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the doctors out there, some doctors out there mm -hmm. who maybe don't have the opportunity to see um, dementia patients that often may need help in, in what's the right way to diagnose. And so- yeah. Tell us a little bit about like how you, if, if from the very first time you see a patient, how do you conclude that it is a dementia or a type of dementia? And, and how do you know you're right in, in that diagnosis? Yeah, that's an extremely good question. And I do work with primary care doctors um, exactly on this. How do, you, how do you figure out whether this may be a dementia and how do you formalize the diagnosis and how do you talk to the patient about the diagnosis? 
I, I do recommend screening tools. The screening tool that I recommend um, is called the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And it's a wonderful screening tool. It's not diagnostic, but it does test different domains, including attention and delayed recall. There are five words that patients have to remember after five minutes, which is pretty, it's, it's not easy. And um, so visual, spatial, attention, naming, rare animals, um, and orientation. Wait, sorry, let me let me just sorry Stephanie. Let me just interrupt you really quickly there because I I'm I'm puzzled by the Mocha test because I've done mm -hmm. it with my own my mother, and yeah. some days she doesn't perform so well, and other days mm -hmm. she's spot on and she performs mm -hmm. really well. So you know again yeah. it's this pattern of well you know if, if I took her to the doctors on the day she like I've given it to her probably like four or five times just to see and what she scores is, I mean, the only thing that she messed up on every single time was the clock, drawing the clock. Mm -hmm. But other than that, her scores varied considerably. Yeah. I mean, some days yeah, it was yeah. passing, you know, so. And, and this is a screening tool. So absolutely not diagnostic. However, if the score does come back and it's, if someone's taken the MOCA a few times, they also do learn. So um, there are different versions of the MOCA to keep in mind, but if someone, um, performs poor, poorly, and um, more than would be expected given their educational history, their professional history, that can set off something to make you think about maybe something else might be going on. The first thing you want to consider is, is there something medical that could be contributing? For example, does the patient have a low vitamin B12 level? And that could look exactly like cognitive impairment. And when the B12 level um, is back to normal, people's cognitive functioning goes right back to normal. So what is that exact relationship between B12? I've often wondered that too, because I'm low in B12. What, what's the exact relationship between memory and B12? So I don't know the exact relationship between memory and B12. We do know that in people who have low levels, that they don't perform as well on cognitive testing and they don't feel as clear as well. And it doesn't just affect memory, it also affects mood. So if um, a person is found to have a low B12, supplementing can be life-changing in how they feel, but also how they perform cognitively. So um, other things to think about are thyroid function, both hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. Um, I, I have a patient right now um, with, um, with thyroid difficulties whose cognitive functioning has changed from one week to the next. So, um, so normalizing thyroid function can make a huge difference in cognitive performance. And uh, also medications. So patients who, for example, take Ativan or Valium or other benzodiazepines for anxiety chronically, they might feel that over time, either the medication is not as effective or that they just feel a little bit more sedated during the day and they can't perform as well as they used to perform on tests. And actually simplifying their medications can cause an increase in their performance as well. So there, there are medical and medication reasons that people might not be performing at their peak. Um, the MOCA screen tool is really just a screen to see if, um, if, if it really matches up with the picture you see, not diagnostic. The history is most important and the longitudinal course of symptoms. So if a patient has brand new symptoms, it's usually not really the first time that they've noticed the symptoms probing a little bit, you can get a better sense asking family members, friends, any collateral that they're willing to share, primary care doctor um, notes, 
you can see if it's a gradual progression, that would be more in line with a neurodegenerative process. Not ruling out medical, I mean, of course there could be medical causes as well. But um, the time course, if it's really rapid onset, I do like to get head imaging if a patient's never had head imaging because everything can cause cognitive changes, including the scary things like tumors. Or um, you can also see grossly what the brain looks like. If it's very small for the person's age, especially in a younger per person, you might think there might be a neurodegenerative process going on. But very often the structural imaging looks fine. Um, patients' brains- You're talking about MCI, not PET scans, right? You're talking about- I think uh, the MRI, yeah. MRI, yeah. sorry, yeah. MRI, yeah. Or, or even sometimes people have CAT scans you know, after a motor vehicle accident, or um, they can both give you structural pictures. It doesn't show you how the brain's performing, but it can show how much brain volume there is. And there are ways to measure actually how the size of the hippocampus, the area that's involved in learning and memory, which is affected early on in Alzheimer's disease. And if that area is smaller than expected, that can provide another clue that there might be something structural as well, that that's abnormal in a normal sized brain. Someone's interest with the vitamins, with the B12. Um, yeah. We have another question about, are there any other vitamin deficiencies that should be on our radar in terms of you know, cognitive loss, um, things that improve cognition, um, anything else uh, we should think about? Uh, often it's a vitamin um, B12 folate. Um, and then there's a question about vitamin D as well. And so I generally, there is, there's some mixed evidence. But uh, a lot of people we do know, especially in northern climates, are vitamin D deficient. And so for also bone health, it's important to make sure those levels are normalized. But uh, those are sort of the standard uh, labs that I would get from the vitamins. That's uh, the two vitamins I'm low in, by the way. <laughs> I supplement I them. Get some sunshine. <laughs> now I'm thinking, oh my God, that's why. <laughs> there um, is one other, um, there's one other vitamin that in people who might not be having a good diet or who use a lot of alcohol, and that's vitamin B1 or thiamine. And you may have heard of um, Wernicke's encephalopathy, but that's basically a deficiency of vitamin B1, usually seen in people who um, use alcohol in high amounts, and that can absolutely cause confusion and um, neurologic symptoms that can look similar to cognitive impairment at times. So if you drink a lot of al alcohol, you and like, you know, best thing is to not drink a lot of alcohol, but if you, you don't, then you would supplement thiamine? Is that is that what counters it or? Yeah, but, but it's not well absorbed if you're use, using a lot of alcohol. Um, and people, when we're concerned about vitamin B1 levels, oral supplementation actually doesn't do that much. You wanna give it IV high doses to make sure that um, the brain is protected. Okay, and then um, another question is, what what are your thoughts on using um, NeuroQuant MRI as a diagnostic tool over time to diagnose dementia? I, I don't know what NeuroQuant MRI is, so. So basically, it, um, it'll provide more information about certain areas of the brain. Again, structural imaging provides information. It doesn't 100% provide a diagnosis. So the symptoms, I'm assuming if they're getting a neuroquant MRI, they have symptoms and um, the typical history, longitudinal history. However, to make that diagnosis of dementia, again, they have to have the activities of daily living that are affected and they have to have a progression. And um, 
And having this imaging can be very supportive. Okay, so I, I mean, end of the day, the more the more information, probably the better, right? I mean, you, it's putting putting a history together, comparing periods of time to get more information. And you might have, while you're waiting for some of this information, you might you might have a probable diagnosis. So they're they're really. Um, it's a very difficult diagnosis to make. And while people are alive and they, depending on what kind of imaging they have, some imaging can actually visualize um, pox, pox and pangles. But um, for the majority of people, imaging is not actually what makes the diagnosis. It just supports the diagnosis and it's the clinical history. It's a clinical diagnosis. Okay, well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I think this has been hugely helpful. Um, and as you can see from the amount of questions we're getting, it's really um, a tricky point for a lot of people out there trying to understand um, more about um, memory loss, um, impairment, um, the right types of medications, deficiencies. Um, but there's a lot to think about. And But thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us, um, especially from um, a psychiatrist seeing a lot of um, dementia patients. It's, it's um, very helpful to us. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So if you want, if you missed any of this interview, uh, you wanna see more of these interviews, these are our Being Patient Brain Talks series where we go directly to the experts. We have your questions guide us um, in what you wanna know. Um, you can find all of these websites, uh, these interviews rather on our website at beingpatient.com under the tab Brain Talks. Um, we also have Being Patient Perspectives. That's another um, talk series where we feature um, the person diagnosed with dementia, the patient's point of view about what it's like to live with dementia. So please, um, if we haven't covered a topic, write to us at info at beingpatient.com. Let us know what you wanna hear. Um, if there's an expert you want us to approach, we're always happy to do so. Thanks very much for watching.